Welcome to the Army Medical Department Center of History and Heritage podcast series, Army Medicine History. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Medical Department Center of History and Heritage. The goal of this podcast is to share the story of Army medicine with soldiers, military, civilians, teachers, researchers, and the general public. So here we are again, um, and we always get together, but now this is actually a recording, so it's, it's now dispatched to the masses of our wisdom that we impart upon each other. Um, that is a frightening thought, Scott. It truly, truly is. So, um, and I'm just reminding you, by the way, this was all your idea. But uh, well, I, I still well, think it's going to be successful. If it goes well, then I'll take credit for that. If not, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> and I will take responsibility. But, yeah, to, to put out, gosh, our first podcast, this is really exciting that uh, we're finally doing it. And so what, what's your goal with this podcast? Okay. Well, as a historian assigned to the United States Army Medical Department Center and School Health Readiness Center of Excellence, we are functionally the schoolhouse that teaches all the soldiers who are practicing medicine in the Army. So whether that's the physician, the nurse, the occupational therapist, x-ray technician, medical logistician, medic, the whole gamut. But what we want to do, and as a historian stationed here, I want to be able to tell the story of Army medicine to inspire them and to let them know that they have a huge legacy that they've, that are, that's been built and that they can go forward with that legacy. But then also I think you as a, a museum director also have another piece to that. Mine is from the perspective of a retired Medical Service Corps officer who did 22 years and now I basically feel like I'm continuing on my mission of being able to serve the Army. Uh, but you have a different take on that but also it, it it goes well with it. It really does, and, and you know, being with the Army Medical Department Museum here, um, you know, we're carrying on just about a hundred years uh, now of legacy of supporting the mission of the center and schools, supporting the mission of that training, but also passing this this great information to the public, whether that's to inspire possibly uh, vocations in the health services field, but also to train our students to build esprit de corps uh, among the students and our army medical professionals uh, as well as to just make sure that that we are fulfilling the, the heritage and history role given to us under army regulation because it's an important part not only of esprit de corps it's also an important part of morale and to be able to support them too with with direct knowledge that they can use to be more effective in the field not simply old dusted off stories but real important stories that they can they can put into use in their daily life to make them more effective that's what we're all about and i think the two work together beautifully yeah and as a previous instructor for the army and uh so slash educator i know that people have different learning models and different ways to learn i'm a visual learner so for me going to a museum enhances my learning and as a little kid my parents took me to Army museums. So as a little kid, my first goal was to be a brother. So at age three, I had already accomplished my mission when my sister was born. But after that, I wanted to be a soldier. And that was influenced by me going to a museum where it was tangible. I could see it and touch it and smell it. 
Interestingly enough, my parents took me to museums all over the country. I think my father truly believed that a vacation was not long enough if you didn't need an oil change in the middle. <laughs> and we went to museums all over the country, and, and my great love was military history, and I wanted to be a military historian, and, and now to work here is, is truly a dream come true for me as well. So if we're going to be talking about it, I think one important thing we do need to bring up is any anything that we say here, this is this is... Scott Woodard and George Wunderlich, historian, museum, people, it's our opinion. This is not the opinion of the Army. It's not the opinion of the United States Army Medical Department, the center and school. This is just our opinion uh, based on the history we study. And, and if we're going to start, we have to start in the beginning. So I'm going to ask you what may seem like an odd question here, but you and I talked about this a little bit. When I say George Washington, other than the dollar bill, which we don't have enough of ever, what do you think? What, what comes to your mind? Because I've, I've, I've read an article recently that kind of changed my thinking on Washington, and it deals with medicine. So what are your thoughts? I, you know, initially, I think I'm like most people. I think of or this guy was an officer. He was selected to be the commander of the Army, and then it was in an environment of the age where he could have become the king, um, but he didn't. And he was subservient to the Congress. And that's what makes our nation very unusual, particularly in this hemisphere. And uh, so I think of him as the leader of this nation. And he proved his worth as a commander in combat. And, and I would agree, I think, when most people think of him like you, I, I think the father of our country, the first president, the, the general officer in charge. And I, I tend to picture him in, in some of those beautiful 18th and 19th century paintings of crossing the Delaware. I was shocked the other day to find when I was reading, um, doing I'm some research. I'm shocked to find uh, out that you actually read. George. That I actually read. I, I do occasionally read. Um, but I was shocked. I was reading his orders. So he came to Boston and took control over the combined militias there. Uh, he comes to Boston on July 3rd of 1775. And on July 4th, he writes his first order. And you would think that the first orders, I mean, there's a brand new army, he's a brand new commander, he must have had a laundry list of things that he had to talk about. In fact, the orders were relatively short, and a full half of them dealt with health. His orders included admonitions to the officers to make sure that the men were kept clean, that their uniforms were kept clean, and the camps were, were kept clean because of, of health, because although we don't have a germ theory, we don't understand what causes disease, Having served in the British Army during the French and Indian War, he understood the importance of sanitation as a matter of keeping the men healthy enough to fight. Um, he then went one step further and talked about the latrines and that the officers should be very diligent in making sure that the men fill them up with dirt when they become um, you know, too full to cover them to keep them from leaking out into the camp again knowing, not knowing why, but knowing that poor sanitation would lead, to, uh, would lead to men falling sick. If you're sick, you can't fight. Interesting for us, I mean, you know, the, the very slogan that we work under every day is conserve the fighting strength, and Washington's doing that in 1775, and he even goes one step further and talks about smallpox. And you can really tell now that, that he didn't have a good scientific understanding of smallpox because his way of fighting was don't go fishing. <laughs> he actually put an admonition, but it does make sense in a way, because we know 
that a lot of waterborne diseases that we're seeing in the 18th and 19th century, they're coming from polluted water sources, he assumed and actually stated, if you are not immune to smallpox, don't go near the pond, don't go fishing. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a, uh, a coverall for pretty much all these mystery diseases where there was a, a miasma or a fluvia coming from the swamp, the idea of a poison gas, and they would, you know, doctors would often talk fancy talk, so they would do it in Latin, call it the mal aria. And so these mal aria fevers would come up from the swamp and poison your blood. And again, this, it's not science, but it's observation. So George Washington, as a commander, he's been influenced, something's influenced him from a sanitation uh, method. He brings in guys like um, Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben, comes in, writes the blue book, and talks about how the commander is responsible for the health of his men. The commander is responsible for sanitation and cleanliness, as you've alluded to earlier. And it was kind of a twofold. It's a measure of discipline in the, of the soldier, and it's also a, an ability to create an environment where the soldiers are not getting sick. Because it is all about, for the combat commander, it's all about the fight. And if you have most of your soldiers in the sick bed, they're not going to fight. And we still do that today in Army medicine. We want to keep soldiers well, and we also want to have them return to duty quickly so they can do their job, and that's to be able to engage in combat. It's interesting because I ran recently into an article from 2005 in the Smithsonian Magazine. I found it online when I was looking. And one of the comments that the writer makes is he says, uh, he talks about Washington coming on, Washington's first orders. And he said, we remember him as a strategist, we remember him as a political leader, as a leader of men, but he said his greatest contribution may well have been um, in getting his men immune to smallpox, which at that time, and I think we forget, during the 18th century, there was a, a continent-wide, actually a hemisphere-wide, um, smallpox outbreak, but especially in North America, from Canada all the way through Mexico. And this could have ended the, ended the revolution very early. And so he's talking about smallpox at the very beginning of his command. And interestingly enough, if you read his orders, he gives the order to elevate an officer by the name of Artemis Ward. So what? Artemis Ward is the first general officer to vaccinate or to, at those, at those times, variolate his men against smallpox when in Boston in 1776, the following year. Washington's going to do the same with the larger Continental Army at Valley Forge in January of 77, the same winter. So it's pretty obvious that Washington is passing on that concern of preserving the fighting strength of protecting the men's health to one of the very officers that on the very first day of his command he puts in charge. Yeah. And we, we use that as, a, as an example. I know going through the museum, we talk about the <clears throat> the variolation that George Washington ordered. Um, my joke with students coming through or sometimes educators from the public come through to see our museum and I'll say, okay, test question, how many colonies uh, rebelled against Great Britain? The answer is 13, but if it wasn't for smallpox, it would have been 14 potentially because our effort to get into Quebec was unsuccessful because most of the soldiers were sick in bed with smallpox. So Washington took that observation and made a change for good for his army later on, like you said.
It's, it, and I think we should probably explain variolization um, because it, it does have some drawbacks, we have to admit. Um, you, at this time, we're not using cowpox, as Jenner will come up with a little later. We're not using um, the, the types of vaccines we're using today. We're actually cutting the skin slightly to bring some blood to the surface. Uh, of a soldier or any individual, and then taking the scab of someone who's getting over smallpox or who has a mild case, and putting that scab directly into your blood. So one of the one of the things that I like to tell to the students is, I'll pick one of them and I'll say, okay, so you're you're getting over smallpox, you're doing very well. I'm going to take a couple of your scabs. I'm going to put them in a mortar and pestle them and grind them up, and I'm going to apply them to these four soldiers over here. And I'll I'll look at each one of them, and then I'll look back at him and say oh gosh, you don't have like syphilis or anything, do you? Because oh, I'm really sorry for you for. That was a drawback, certainly. But the number of individuals that will survive and the country that will survive because of that immunization far at that time outweighed some of the potential drawbacks. And I think it's something we need to look at today because we're having the very same arguments. Well, we have drawbacks to some of these vaccines. The war would have ended if there had been a major outbreak. Yeah. And we inherited the knowledge from the British Army. And so even uh, manuals that the British Navy and Army used, like written by Sir John Pringle, he talked about exposing troops in the Caribbean before they went on duty in the southern colonies. The idea was that they would get seasoned inside the Caribbean and then if they live, they're immune to the malarial fevers, the yellow fever, things like that, so that in the southern colonies, they'll be fit to fight. And so there's this knowledge that's there. And as we've progressed in medical history and military history, we find out the scientific reasons for that. But from observation, he is able to make good change. And it's reflective that the Army Medical Department, that we call it now, was established by the Continental Congress. So this, they established a hospital, a hospital department that we would now call our, you know, Army Medicine. And that was in service from the very beginning, along with the Continental Army. That's 244 years coming up for us, just in a, in a matter of, of uh, a few days. And, and what an incredible legacy. And one of the things that I love is, you know, when we look at our regimental crest, uh, which I'm fortunate enough to pass that, that beautiful mosaic we have in the front lobby here in the, in the uh, museum. Underneath in Latin, we have experientia et progressus, experience and progress. And we are seeing that from the very beginning. We took the experience of the British Army in order to, to push our medical care forward as far as possible. Um, during the revolution, yeah, we don't have a germ theory, we don't yet have the microbiology, we don't yet have uh, people like Lister and Pasteur giving us the information, but we're taking already the experience and we're putting it into use. And I think one of the great ones not only is, is inoculation, but let's look at the hospitals at the time. We're already seeing that the more pent up um, a hospital is, the more closely quartered the men are, um, the more sealed that the windows are, that the infection rate and the mortality rate in those hospitals is, is unseemly. Um, Tilton, during the American Revolution, is looking at this, doesn't know why, but he said, well, wait a minute, 
the men in the tents aren't getting sick nearly as often as the men in the houses. So what if I design a hospital that has the ventilation of a tent? And so his log hospital with open windows, many, many fireplaces, because we do need to keep the men warm, uh, spreading the men out a bit and using the fires in the, in, the, in the hearth to draw clean air from outside and push the air, getting back to your miasm from the water, um, the, the bad smell of a swamp is what they thought was causing disease. Let's draw fresh air in, let's flush it out through the, uh, through the chimneys. And he had a great deal of success, whereas the French, who were far and away uh, more experienced in medicine than we were, had a hospital that actually had chutes down the side, a uh, multi-story brick, brick building. And the chutes down the side were for de de uh, depositing bedpans, uh, human waste. And they had a typhus outbreak. Well, of course they're going to have a typhus outbreak because all the bugs that are living in there are going to crawl back to your patients and infect them. Here's a place where we used our experience to make yeah. a change that pushed us forward. And of course, you know, we can look back now in retrospect and be the Monday morning quarterback and easily say, oh, well, it's, it's obviously because you know, the French were breathing in their own filth. Um, but guys like the surgeon Tilton, who's working with the Continental Army, is noticing these things. And so just like the rooster on the insignia is, he's walking to the right, but he's looking over his left shoulder. He is progressing forward because he's able to look back at the past and make decisions and then go forward with it. So. Like you said, Tilton does it with these hospitals that are able to have uh, ventilation. Um, I just recently was studying the frontier forts in Texas and specifically the hospitals. And what they write about when they're inspecting the hospitals in 1870 and 1874 is this idea of having ventilation. And then some of the older buildings that weren't built specifically designed for ventilation, the inspector would make a comment saying that, well, not all the wood fits together well on the floor or in the windows, so that's a good bit for us in ventilation. It keeps the soldiers well. Because during the American Revolution and our American Civil War, the joke, unfortunately, was morbid, the fact that you go to hospital to die. And this is a way to prevent death and therefore allow a soldier to return to duty. So guys like the surgeon Tilton, who's, we have a piece of his hospital here in the museum, you. you can, there's a guy like me who is a visual learner. I can see the evidence of this log cabin that's built to facilitate airflow to keep the soldiers well. And, and we benefit from that. They took that as an example of learning from the past. So I've got a question for you because you're talking about ventilation and I know you've, you've always had a kind of a great love of studying uh, some of the waterborne diseases and some of the issues surrounding uh, the water issues. So uh, tell me in your experience, what are the surgeons saying about water? I mean, we know because of Walter Reed, again, a soldier, but now in the Spanish-American War, uh, who's going to do research on to finally figure out it's not the water, it's the mosquito. But what are these early doctors looking at? Well, in the American Revolution, there's that knowledge that uh, we can send soldiers down to Jamaica and get them seasoned. Well, if we're already in the south, the southern colonies, or in the northern colonies, we also have field manuals that talk about do not bivouac 
near swamps in the morning and at night in particular. So this idea is do not camp next to a water source. So the same idea that George Washington said, don't go fishing because that's how you get sick. They knew that there was something in the water, whether it was, the thought was that it was maybe animal matter or vegetation that it's been uh, brought together and it's just stagnant. See, they have all the observations and the clues are there. And in retrospect, we know that, of course, it's the mosquitoes that are in the water bringing that disease, yellow fever or malaria, that bad air, mal area. But they know from observation, don't be in that area. So you have measures that are implemented like, um, number one, follow the commander's orders and don't bivouac in that area. Don't be there in the morning at night. And you have other measures like George Washington has the soldiers go ahead and burn their gunpowder, their black powder that they have that's with their brown bess, burn that inside their tent, and then that's going to chase out all the miasma. Well, if you've ever smelled black powder, uh, it's a lot of sulfur, and that sulfur is going to push out mosquitoes too. We all know this because now we're so smart and we know everything today. Um, they didn't know, but they knew from observation. Get to Boy, if we only knew everything today, wouldn't that be a wonderful, wonderful happenstance? What, what I find interesting, so we have this experimentation, uh, but we also have the experience of the past. We're seeing this progress. We're seeing these orders come out. And what's interesting is just how far reaching those, those are. Um, in the Crimean War in the 1850s, uh, Florence Nightingale is going to actually develop statistical data and then turn these into these beautiful charts that show that men in tents tend to get sick and to die less often than men in barns who do better than men uh, who are ill who are in houses. In the Civil War, they started a lot of the ventilation issues that then we see in your study by the 1870s. It's being written into, uh, into the orders you know, okay, these hospitals of the Civil War proved themselves, there's the experience, the progress is, we're not gonna inspect every hospital to make sure that it's up to snuff. But I have to tell you, when I was first at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine in Frederick, I wanna say probably 2002, 2003, I was driving to work one day and I heard the, you know, the local radio station had their, the national news feed and it said, uh, I guess it was a slow news day and they said that the World Health Organization has just completed a multi-million dollar study of the environments inside of hospitals. And what they have found is that hospitals that are very modern and have sealed windows and have modern air conditioning systems have a higher mortality and infection rate than older hospitals that leak air and have poor ventilation systems where a lot of outside air comes in and a lot of the inside air is lost. And, and I, I almost drove off the road laughing. I thought, well, Tilton could have told you that. Florence Nightingale could have showed you the statistical data to prove it. Um, really? How many tens of millions of dollars did we spend to prove what we've already proven time and time again in, in our history, and it's things like that that I think is so wonderful. How do we circumvent some of the costs? There's, t there's I think it was a, a $50 million study, worldwide study. How many doses of medicine could we have purchased for $50 million? How many new hospitals could we have built in the third world for $50 million? 
we spent it trying to prove something we already knew. If only somebody named Tilton had known that ventilation would help keep soldiers well. George, I think Darn. you and I need to start uh, requesting grants so that way we can get paid for stuff that we're teaching. You know, I, I think the other thing is we need a podcast. Yes. I, I think we should put this out to the world. And I hope that this podcast serves that purpose. You know, our primary audience members, I think, are going to be the between 15, or if you want to even get to the detail, our soldiers that are 18 years old, all the way up probably maybe 35, probably no more than 40, because those that's the population that's listening to podcasts. Those are my sons. You know, my son is uh, joining the Army. He's 18 years old, and I have to pull the earbuds out of his ear in order to make sure that he's understanding what I'm telling him, because he's listening to stuff like what we're doing right now. And that audience for me is going to be our audience that receives the podcast. And the double bonus is some of them might be soldiers and some of them might be thinking about being soldiers. That's how I came in the Army. Right. And if we can do that, I, I think that this will have been an absolutely grand success. So today we've been able to cover, even though the... I think we've managed to capture all the squirrels, so there weren't many squirrels in this room, but we've tried to stay on subject. The two big things that I take away from this is our heritage from the American Revolution. So you've got the idea of variolation, which is foreshadowing of everything we're doing in immunizations today. And then also the idea of this ventilated hospital based on observations that we continue to see, whether it's frontier medicine, army medicine, and into the future of today with the World Health Organization proving it. Um, those two things the Army's done, and that's just scratching the surface of, of our history. So I know that we're going to continue to do podcasts and stories along with Army Medicine. We still have more stories to tell with the American Revolution, but if you're listening to the podcast and you have questions or you have something that you would recommend us talk about, please do. Bring, send it to us. Let Absolutely. us know. Absolutely. As I tell people, I've heard what I have to say about subjects that I talk about. I would much rather talk about things that other people want to talk about because, frankly, that may lead to some new research to take us down a road we've not gone before, and that would only add to the, to the pool of knowledge that we can use in accomplishing our mission, and then those people are a part of it. And wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to have addition, to be able to bring additional people into this effort? Definitely so. Well, and with that, I think we need to uh, say goodbye, George. Well, I will say goodbye, George. And please remember, for 244 years, Army medicine has been improving your life, whether you're in the Army or not. What a great thing. Scott, have a great day. Talk to you, hopefully, later on this afternoon. Well, George, thank you for the warning. You're welcome, as always. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about the Army Medical Department's Center of History and Heritage, find education support for soldiers, military, civilians, teachers, researchers, and the general public. Please visit our website at history.amedd.army.mil. The Army Medical Department is free and open to the public Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4 p.m. If you do not already have a DOD identification card, please remember to bring a valid ID to the Walter Street Gate, 
located on the south side of Fort Sam Houston. For more information, please call 210-221-9205. If you have any questions or would like to talk to someone at the AMED Museum, please call 210-221-6358. For current base entry requirements, visit the Joint Base San Antonio website at www.jbsa.mil or call 210-221-9205.